Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening, and it is a delight to be back with you all following uh, the break uh, over the holidays. Uh, Charlotte and I uh, had the joy of spending uh, Christmas overseas with uh, three of our sons, two daughter-in-laws, two grandsons, and uh, it was a great, great blessing. Uh, we then had the joy of going to Amman, Jordan for a week, where we were with our two-plus-two students uh, who are serving the Lord in North Africa uh, and the Middle East. And uh, once more, you would be very, very proud of these uh, uh, men and women, uh, several of whom are in very, very difficult situations. One particular young lady uh, who's about this tall, I guess she's 22 or 23, uh, lives in an area where there's no running water, uh, no electricity, and she lives in a dung hut. Now, I'm such an intelligent person. I asked her, what's a dung hut? And, of course, she looked at me and said, it's a hut made out of dung. Uh, I felt really intelligent. My Ph.D. was worth something on that particular occasion. But uh, it will uh, greatly bless you and also uh, convict you uh, when you have a a sister in the Lord serving in that kind of uh, situation. You know, it kind of sets a good uh, platform for what we're going to do tonight as we begin a series of studies through First and Second Timothy. Uh, in his book, uh, Be Faithful, Warren Wiersbe uh, speaks of, a, uh, of an ad that was in the London newspaper some years ago that had thousands of men respond to it, and it simply said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, but honor and recognition in case of success. And that particular ad was placed in the London newspaper by the Arctic explorer, Ernest Shackleton. And because it had that air of excitement and challenge, as Wearsby pointed out, thousands of people responded. Dr. Wearsby then goes on to say, if Jesus Christ were to put in a local newspaper an advertisement for workers, perhaps the announcement would read something like this. Men and women wanted for difficult tasks of helping to build my church. You will often be misunderstood even by those working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor and your full reward will not come till after your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life. And that job description would fit very well the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. Before we turn to 1 Timothy, take your Bible and turn with me for just a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 through verse 28. Paul was converted probably around A.D. 35, give or take a year or so. When he writes 2 Corinthians, it's about A.D. 56 are 57. So he has been a believer now for almost two decades. 
Uh, he has served the Lord on several missionary journeys. And so he is nowhere close to the end of his life. And yet already Paul can write these words to uh, the church at Corinth concerning what he had experienced in his service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ, speaking of those who are opposing Paul at Corinth? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes uh, above measure, in prisons, more frequently in deaths. Often, let me expound what I mean by that. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often in perils, of waters in perils, of robbers in perils, of my own countrymen in perils, of the Gentiles in perils, in the city in perils, in the wilderness in perils, in the sea in perils, among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now it's about A.D. 65. Uh, it is about 10 years later. Uh, Paul is no doubt in the final years of his life. We will see later that when he pens Second Timothy, he is in prison in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. It is his second imprisonment. He does not expect to be released. But when he writes First Timothy, he still is evidently free. He is very concerned about his son in the ministry, very concerned about the church at Ephesus, which had become a very significant beachhead there in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so with that kind of as the backdrop, here's what he writes as he begins this letter to his young son in the ministry. First Timothy chapter one and verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, our father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia Remain in Ephesus that you may charge, that you may command some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, we will see in a moment the doctrine he has in mind is the sound doctrine of the gospel that he notes in verse 11. Verse 4, nor that they give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment, the commandment that he just gave, is love from three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned away to idle talk, a desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good. But it's only good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, 
for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And so here's Paul, 30 years in the ministry, three, probably now on his fourth missionary journey. What he is giving is nothing less than wise counsel from a very seasoned veteran. And if you were to ask me this evening, Danny, is there a key verse that perhaps unfolds for us the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, and certainly 1 Timothy, it would be over in chapter 3 and verse 15, for he writes there, For if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in in the house of God, which is the pillar of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so all that Paul is going to say in First Timothy, I believe also Second Timothy, and even the book of Titus, is concerned with how should the church of God conduct itself in terms of its theology and also in terms of its ministry. Well, as he begins this letter then, he is speaking very specifically to his young son in the ministry, Timothy, although at this particular time, Timothy is probably in his late 30s, maybe even approaching his early 40s. And so he is there at Ephesus, a very trying place, a very difficult place, as I will note in just a moment. And so what is it that Paul says to Timothy as he begins this letter? And it can be summarized this way. What you believe really matters. Truth is not negotiable. What you believe really matters. It will determine how you think, and it will also determine how you live. Now, Paul highlights in these first 11 verses four things about which Timothy must believe rightly. Number one, he tells him, have confidence in your salvation. He begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Paul was originally Saul, converted on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. When he begins his ministry to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13, suddenly the name moves from Saul to Paul. Some believe that the name change reflects his small stature because the word Paul means small or humble. Others think Paul took the name because he had once been a very pride, a prideful and arrogant Pharisee, and now he recognized that he needed to be humble and have the mind of Christ. Others have noted, and this is my own particular persuasion, that Paul's first Gentile convert in Acts chapter 13 was a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. And I think it may be that Paul took that name as a reminder and in honor of the first Gentile that was converted on his first missionary journey. Paul describes himself then as an apostle, a sent one. Of course, that word has both a technical meaning, those who were with the Lord from the beginning of his ministry until his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven. It was also extended also to apply to people like his half-brother James and his half-brother Jude. Paul, of course, calls himself an apostle in that kind of a way, though he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he was one born out of due season. And he also says he sees himself, he uh, considers himself the least of all the apostles. And yet for us today, the word connotes the idea 
of a missionary, of a sent one. And so the fact is, we may not be a, an apostle in the technical sense. I'd like to say it this way. We may not be an apostle with a capital A, but every one of us ought to have the heart of an apostle with a small a. We have the heart and the passion of a missionary to take the gospel to those who need to hear about Jesus. Paul tells the uh, young Timothy, and he, I think, also intended this to be heard at the church at Ephesus. This was not something that I chose for myself. This is not something that I aspire to. This was not something that was ever on my agenda. No, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God. God who? God our Savior. And also the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Now, very interestingly, most of the time in the Bible, it is God the Son, Jesus who is called the Savior. And yet here in 1 Timothy 1, and also a number of other times in the pastoral epistles, Paul will call God the Father the Savior, and then he will also call God the Son, Jesus the Savior. You say, is there a big deal? Only this. Paul can say the same thing about God that he can say about Jesus. In other words, call anyone else the Savior other than God the Father or God the Son, and it's heresy and nonsense. Furthermore, if he can call God the Father Savior, and he can call God the Son Savior, it's not implicit, it's the explicit. That is a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. And so here he calls God the Father our Savior, the one who has saved us from sin, the one who has saved us from sin's penalty, who is saving us from sin's power, who will ultimately save us from sin's presence. We call that justification, sanctification, and glorification. But then also he says, and, and I love the full majestic title, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds, our hope. Now, what does he mean by our hope? I believe he simply means this. He is the only hope we have. He is the only hope for forgiveness of sin. He is also the only hope for heaven when you die. Yesterday, we inaugurated our 44th president. And as many of you know, uh, Pastor Rick Warren was invited to give a prayer in that particular ceremony. This morning, Newsweek magazine online, Lisa Miller, who is no friend of evangelicals, had an article entitled, What Rick Warren Said. And she notes that he both was um, uh, what you expected, and also there was a, an element of surprise. And then this is how she ends her article, and I quote, Finally, Warren made the move that was both inevitable and surprising. He prayed in Jesus' name. Pastors at previous inaugurations have triggered controversy and lawsuits for explicitly Christian prayers, and pundits wondered aloud whether, given the tsunami of press that preceded this prayer, Warren would dare stake out this turf. But... Warren knows who he is. He is a conservative evangelical. There's nothing else for him to do. Once again, his phrasing was death. He invoked Jesus for himself, not for the millions on the mall or the billions watching on television. Quote, I humbly ask this, he said, in the name of the one who changed my life, Jesus. Close quote. And then she concludes. A good job. And yet the lingering question 
remains. Warren's conservative theology teaches him that there is one path to God, and that is Jesus. So when he wraps his big, great big arms around Muslims and Jews and homosexuals, does he really believe there's hope for us, or is he just being nice? Well, the answer to that question is, and I know Rick, yes, he believes there is hope for them. And that hope is found in Jesus. And either they will come to God through faith in Jesus, or they will not come to God at all. Call it nice or call it unnice, I call it loving. Because the fact of the matter is, if he is indeed the only way, we do no one any favors by not telling them the truth. Paul would affirm there's only one hope, his name is Jesus. And I agree that Rick was right, there's only one hope, and his name is Jesus. We have God who is our Savior, we have Jesus who is our hope, and therefore there's great confidence. But he goes on, he says in verse 2 then, to Timothy, who is a true son in The faith, grace, God's unmerited favor, mercy, God's compassion and kindness, peace, the cessation of all hostility, the the wholeness, what the Hebrews called shalom, peace again from God our Father and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. As he says here, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so if you quickly unwrap the first two verses, what do you discover? We have a mission. We're sent ones, we're apostles, we have a Savior, we have a Lord, we have a hope, we have a family, we have something to believe, we have grace, we have mercy, we have peace, we have Father. All of that and more is what you and I have in our salvation, a salvation that once delivered can never, ever, ever be taken away. And so Paul begins in these first two verses by simply noting some of the blessings that we have in salvation. And you should have confidence in this salvation because you have a Father who will never let you go, and you have hope in a Savior whose name is Jesus who will never, ever let you down. So have confidence in your salvation. But now number two, you should also teach sound doctrine. Interestingly, First Timothy is like Galatians. And both First Timothy and Galatians are like Titus in that Paul normally, after his introduction, moves into a prayer of blessing and thanksgiving. But he is so ticked off with the Galatians for abandoning the gospel, he just jumps into their business just like that. He's not all that ticked off at Timothy, although I do think he's a little put out with him, as I'll show in just a moment. But he is so concerned about false teaching slipping into the church at Ephesus, he doesn't have a prayer of thanksgiving or a word of commendation. He just jumps right in and says, Timothy, make sure you keep teaching sound doctrine. Verse 3, as I urged you, we could translate it as I encouraged you. When I went into Macedonia, that is northern uh, modern-day Greece, remain in Ephesus. Perhaps Timothy was thinking about leaving. Perhaps Timothy was becoming discouraged at what was going on there. You say, why? Well, we know as we read in these verses that he was having to deal with false teachers. 
Uh, Charlotte and I had the joy when we were in Turkey just a few weeks ago of going to the ruins at Ephesus. And even to this day, it is very clear that Ephesus was dominated during her uh, her heyday, during her high time, by two things. She was dominated, number one, by the worship of the emperor. And she was also dominated by the worship of the goddess of sex, Diana. In other words, think about it. Sex and politics dominated the city of Ephesus in the first century. Not much has changed in 21 centuries, has it? And so he was having to minister in that kind of context. He's now having false teachers within the church who are challenging him. And so perhaps uh, Timmy Timmy, as he is often called, because he did not have a strong constitution, as I like to say, if Paul had a real problem, he sent his Christian hitman Titus. And Titus was like the, the Luca Brodsky and the Godfather who showed up and cleaned house and said everything right. You didn't mess with Titus. On the other hand, little timid Tim, uh, he had a weak stomach. That's why he had to drink a little wine every now and then. And he just didn't like uh, opposition. He didn't like controversy. He was easily discouraged. And so Paul says, look, I urged you. When I went into Macedonia, I know you wanted to go with me. I know you wanted to maybe go somewhere else. But I said, no, you remain in Ephesus that you may charge. It's the same word translated commandment back in verse one that you may command some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, later in chapter one, you will read of two men in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul says, I delivered to Satan that they might not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so evidently, Hymenaeus and Alexander were already within the church. Perhaps they had some position and had some following, and they were evidently teaching a contrary doctrine. He will use repeatedly in First and Second Timothy the phrase that you see at the end of verse 10, sound doctrine. And so he says to him, I want you to charge them. I want you to command them that they teach no other doctrine. Well, what were they doing? Well, if I could summarize before I jump into it, they were like many people today. Uh, they were majoring on the minors, and they were minoring on the majors. Uh, they were getting involved, like many a seminary student, in a theological debate that was not going to lead anywhere. It wasn't going to build the body up. It wasn't going to draw them closer to Jesus. Oh, it gave them the chance to show off their intellectual dexterity. It gave them the opportunity to engage in theological gymnastics. But as far as building up the body, it was not contributing a plug nickel at all. And yet, nothing has changed, has it? Tragically, churches get filled with people like that. And what it does is it tears down. It doesn't build up. Now, notice what he says there in verse four. I ask that you teach them not to give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, that's a troubling phrase, or at least a somewhat mysterious phrase, because when we read the phrase fables and endless genealogies, we cannot be certain uh, for sure as to exactly what he meant. But it evidently was something like this. They were taking the Bible 
And they were taking the stories of the Bible and the genealogies of the Bible. And number one, they were trying to find hidden meanings. Sort of like the allegorist who would come along later, who would do all sorts of this allegorical uh, yarn spinning in terms of interpreting a text. And so perhaps they were already being influenced by some Greek tendencies. And so they were trying to find hidden meanings beneath the plain meaning and the surface of the text. Uh, in addition, they were evidently spinning off some traditions that they were, again, bringing along lines of equal authority to the Bible. In other words, what they were doing was they were going beyond the plain meaning of Scripture. They were going beyond the basic teaching of the text, and they were trying to add things that they thought indicated a greater spirituality, a greater intellect, deeper insight into the Bible. And Paul says, bottom line, all this kind of stuff does is it causes disputes rather than godly edification. That is the building up of the body, which takes place in faith. In other words, they were engaged in theological gymnastics. They were not staying with the basic uh, content and the basic truth of the gospel. As I like to say, their problem was they got their focus off of Jesus. They got their focus off of the Bible. And they were talking about extraneous things that really were not going to be helpful. Furthermore, no one could be absolutely certain about them anyway. Once more. God has given me the joy of being in theological education now for almost 20 years. Uh, for most of that period of time, I taught systematic theology. I love theology. I enjoy teaching theology. I enjoy studying and reading theology. But I also know this. Where the Bible stops, I need to stop. And what the Bible majors on, I need to major own. Now, I may have some particular views about some certain things that uh, I think just simply fall in line with the sort of the thrust or the tenor of Scripture. But am I going to minor or uh, minor on the majors and major on the minors? No, that is not going to build up the body. Uh, that is not going to reach more people for Christ. What it's going to wind up doing is dividing the church, or if not dividing the church, causing factions within the church to develop. And when that happens, the church is not going to be effective. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I would not be a part of a church that wanted to fight all the time about Calvinism. I would not be a part of such a church. I am premillennial and pre-tribulational in my eschatology, just like my good friend uh, David Lanier. But I'm not going to be a part of a church that wants to fuss and fight about the time of the rapture. Who is the Antichrist? Who is the false prophet? We've got to know to the last detail about the seal trump uh, judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. And we've got to dot every theological I and cross every theological T when it comes to exactly what the nature of the millennium is. I have some opinions about all of that. But those are minor things, not major things. What is major? The major thing is Jesus is coming again. The major thing is there's going to be a heaven and there's going to be a hell. And the difference is Jesus. Now, that's what really matters. And that's what we need to major on. But unfortunately, you had here a bunch of theological eggheads, a bunch of uh, scholastic snobs. And as a result of that, the church was suffering. And so Paul says, Timothy, step up to the plate, play the man and shut that stuff down. So we have to have confidence in our salvation. 
We have to teach sound doctrine. And then number three, and it just flows naturally out of it. We have to avoid useless arguments. Verse five. Now, the purpose of the commandment, and I take that to be the commandment that he just gave in verse three. The purpose of the commandment is love, love. It is love that is essential to the health of the body. And how does love uh, blossom and grow and spread throughout the church? Well, he tells you it comes, number one, from a pure heart. Number two, from a good or a clear conscience. And number three, from a sincere, it could be translated unhypocritical, from a sincere, genuine, unhypocritical faith. From which, tragically, some having strayed, have turned away to idle talk. So, what is he telling us about these people? Uh, they are teaching those things which are divisive. They are teaching those things which are useless, which are empty, idle talk. And then he says, but they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they Affirm. In other words, yes, they were involved in teaching the Old Testament, the, 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 the Bible for the first century church until these books came along. But they were interested in speculating about the genealogies. They were interested in fabricating uh, fables and mythology about some of the people, some of the personalities. And also, they were legalists. They were pharisaical. And they claim to be experts in the law, and yet Paul says they do not know or understand what they are affirming. But hey, they were cocksure about what they thought, and they were absolutely sure that they were right. And if you doubted it, they were happy to tell you on every possible occasion. And so Paul says, don't major on the minors. Stay focused on Jesus and his gospel. Don't try to find things in the Bible that are not there and avoid these useless arguments. That then leads us fourthly and finally to the fact that Paul says also, use God's law in concert with the gospel. Use God's law in concert with the gospel. Now, if you are a note taker, I'm going to raise a question, answer it very quickly, and then walk us through verses 8 through 11. What is the purpose of God's law? That's a very interesting discussion among theologians. What is the purpose of the law of God? The Ten Commandments, if you want to boil it down to that. After all, we know that the Ten Commandments cannot save us. Because is there a problem with the Ten Commandments? No. Now, there's a problem with you. And there's a problem with me. And we can't measure up to that standard. So why is it that God gave us the law? I think there are at least four reasons. I'll note them and then highlight the one that Paul seems to focus on here in this text. Number one, the law of God reveals his character and holiness. The law of God reveals the character and the holiness of our God. So that's one good purpose about it. Secondly, the law is a mirror and a teacher to lead you to Christ. It is a mirror and a teacher to lead you to Christ. If you are, again, a note taker right beside that, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, where Paul says the law is a pedagogos, a schoolmaster, a school instructor to lead you to Christ. As a mirror, it shows you and me our sin. 
And as a teacher, it informs us, you can't measure up to this standard of perfection. But Jesus did it for you, which is at the heart of the gospel. And so it is a mirror, a teacher that leads us to Christ. Thirdly, it is a guide for life. Now, it is a guide that by virtue of our trusting Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit is a guide that now is internalized that we live out through the ethic of love. In other words, we now recognize that not only do we not murder, we are not even to have a murderous thought. We now understand that we're not only not to commit adultery, we're not even to have an adulterous thought. And so the guide for life is now internalized in Christ through the Spirit. So it reveals the character and holiness of God. It is a mirror teacher that leads us to Christ. It guides us for life, now internalized by the Spirit. But fourthly, it restrains evil. It restrains evil. And that seems to be the purpose that Paul highlights here, because look at what he says there in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. All right, Paul. So there is a good use to the law. Yes. Well, what is it? Well, here's his explanation in this context. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Of course, we know that that righteousness can only come through faith in Christ as we receive his righteousness to our account. It is not for a righteous person, but for, and what he begins by doing, is he basically walks you through, in a general fashion, the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are three uh, uh, phrases that are packaged in a both-and kind of thing. Notice he says, it is for the lawless and the insubordinate. It is for the ungodly and for sinners. And it is for the unholy and uh, the profane. And a number of commentators point out that those line up pretty good with the first table of the Ten Commandments. If you're looking at the first commandments, the first four, the first five, this is a good way of summarizing it. It speaks of people who are lawless, in rebellion against God, ungodly, which means they're idolaters, they are sinners, unholy and profane. Then, he gives you a listing of sins that line up for the most part with commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And we'll just note them very quickly. The law is given for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. You say there are places in the world where that happens. There have always been places in the world where that happens. He says it's also for manslayers, for murderers in general. He then says in verse 10, it is for fornicators and for sodomites. The word fornicators is a word that deals with any type of sexual conduct outside the parameters of marriage between a man and a woman. It is that general word in the Bible that talks about any type of sexual immorality. It would cover premarital sex. It would cover extramarital sex. Uh, it would also cover unnatural sex, but Paul actually, perhaps because of the things going on in a city like Ephesus, gets very specific and he says it is also for sodomites, that is, it is for homosexuals. Again, we should not hate homosexuals. In fact, we should not hate any sinner. Uh, were it not for God's grace, we would be right there with them. And yet again, we do no one any favors by watering down 
discounting or even rejecting the clear teachings of the Bible. And again, the Bible says outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, any type of sexual conduct, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, the Bible calls it sin. And so the law is for fornicators and sodomites. It's for the New King James says kidnappers, but the word actually was used in the ancient world for slave traders. That is those who would go and capture persons and then sell them into slavery. Uh, how our uh, founding fathers and how uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the 1700s and the 1800s failed to see this application to the slave industry in America, I simply do not understand. He then says it is also for liars and for perjurers. And just in case I left anything out, if there's any other thing that is contrary, that is in opposition to, and this phrase, you ought to mark it because it will occur again and again and again in the pastorals, contrary to sound doctrine. That's very interesting. That word sound is the word in Greek from which we get our word hygiene, hygienia. Uh, it is a word that means healthy, hygienic. And so what he is doing is using a beautiful image in terms of the, the metaphor here or the imagery. And he's saying, look, there's a certain kind of doctrine that brings healing. And there's another kind of doctrine that brings sickness. There's one kind of doctrine that will make you well. And there's another kind of doctrine that is filled with disease. And you say, well, Danny... How do I make sure I stay in the realm of that sound, healthy doctrine? He tells you in verse 11, it's all according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. I've often said, and I'll close with this tonight. Give me 10 minutes with any one of you. 10 minutes. Let me ask you some basic questions about what you believe about Jesus and his gospel. And I can pinpoint pretty close about 95% of the rest of your theology. Because what you believe about Jesus and his gospel will determine what you believe about the Bible. It will determine what you believe about God. It will determine what you believe about man. It will determine what you believe about salvation. It will even determine what you believe in a real sense about the Holy Spirit, the church and the end times. That's why Paul says sound doctrine. You mark it down. It is centered in Jesus and it grows out of his precious, wonderful gospel that he came into the world. As Paul will say in verse 15 of this chapter, he came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So you stay close to Jesus. You stay rooted in the gospel and you will live in a world of healthy doctrine and not doctrine that is diseased and that doctrine that is doctrine that ultimately could lead to your spiritual death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these first 11 verses where you challenge uh, through Paul, uh, Timothy, uh, to not let go of the hope that he has in Jesus, that he indeed would make sure that he teaches healthy doctrine. That, Lord, he would not get caught up in useless wranglings and disputes that build up nobody. And that, Lord, he would help them understand that the law, it's a good thing when used rightly. Use the law uh, to get you to heaven. 
and you will die and go to hell because no one can obey the law perfectly. But allow the law to show you God's character. Allow the law to restrain evil. Allow the law to be a mirror and a teacher that will lead you to Christ and then take that law. And internalize it in love so that now the law not only deals with your actions, it also deals with your attitudes, your heart and your motives. And Lord, if we will follow out that kind of course, then we will walk in truth. And Lord, help us to remember tonight, truth is truth whether people embrace it or believe it or not. Our job is not to force people to believe the truth. Our job is simply to proclaim the truth of the gospel and then allow your precious spirit to do his saving work. So, Lord, help us to heed the counsel from a wise warrior, a man of great experience, uh, great travail and great knowledge. We ask and pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.